This is SciBite, episode 104, for October 1st, 2013. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live over jblive.tv on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, 10.30 Eastern, and then fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at sleeping away fear, lunar formation theories, neonatal hypoglycemia, Sending messages to interstellar space, viewer feedback, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Holy smokes. Well, Heather, a special happy science to you. That sounds like a great lineup. Should we uh, kick it off with, oh, I don't know, the news? Let's go. All right. What are we going to talk about at the top here? So sleep and fear. There was a study that showed that exposing people to a memory over and over again while they slept was actually able to reduce that fear. So what they did was, you know, how do you make someone dream about icky, icky spiders or whatever you may fill in the blank here? They had 10 subjects and they would, while they were awake, they would receive mild electrical shocks while seeing two (laughs) different faces and smelling something. So they'd smell like, Lemon, shock, and a face. (laughs) And then they see, you know, smell mint and a different face with no shock. So only one of them was causing fear. So what they were able to do then was say, okay, now the brain is associating this face and smell equal bad. So then while they were asleep, they could be exposed to that smell. And so the brain is connecting them together. And once they were able to do it over and over while they slept, when they checked them again the next day, the response for the fear of that face and smell equaling shock, the fear was reduced. So is it like it's 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 like sort of using that built in system where like when you smell something, it takes you back to a memory only kind of using that to wash the fear out of you? (laughs) Yes, they have a daytime what they call exposure therapy where it's. You have a fear of something, and so we'll call it spiders. Just because I'm not quite afraid of spiders, but... Oh, I don't So I can talk about it. Yeah. Enough so they can actually talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So they'll slowly, like, introduce you to, like, there's a quick picture of one. Here's more pictures. And it's just slowly expose yourself, expose your brain to this more and more so that it kind of deadens the fear. No, the more I look at spiders, the more they freak me out. (laughs) Well, it's, it's like a specific type of therapy. Yeah, I follow so what they're, what they're thinking is this might be able to roll over into while someone sleep. So it's kind of a way to expand upon that type of therapy. So I love the idea of being semi-productive while I sleep. Yes, Not that my exactly. body isn't already being productive in its own little way. Yes. But it's, it's one of those things where you might be able to help treat phobias. Now, I know somebody who had... Um, a phobia of heights and he went into this sort of 
because he, he it interfered with his ability to drive hmm. and like going on an overpass or anything. And so he went to this kind of exposure therapy where they kind of helped him a little bit his way through it. So at least he could drive from point A to point B without making sure he had a specific route in mind. Saying, I can only take these roads. And so this kind of a thing would be able to roll over into while he was asleep and maybe make that therapy, you know, go a little faster or be, you know, better. And they were able to, you know, it's like fear. How do you measure fear? Well, they did like through small amounts of like sweat in the skin, which is kind of like a lie detector test. Mm. And they actually did the fMRI, which if you were watching the video feed, you might have seen it. It's one of those functional MRIs where they can actually view your brain while you're thinking. So they can kind of see what changes or what's triggering off in your brain while you're conscious. They're able to see specific decreases in reactivity to those faces and odors while they were sleeping and with the you know amount of sweat on the skin. So it's interesting in this fact that they could actually use this to help people. And like you said, be productive while you sleep and be yeah. able to expand upon that kind of a therapy during a time where, hey, that's extra time for that kind of a therapy and you can do it when you're not trying to be very useful during the day. Mm. You, so your productivity is still a little higher. You're just being able to more make more use of uh, non-working time. Yeah. Interesting. Well, maybe uh, maybe it'll start. Maybe it starts there, and then you take it fifty years down the road, and you've got the Matrix, and you can learn Kung Fu in your sleep. Huh? What do you think, Heather? Science is skeptical. Oh well, then why don't we take a quick break right there? And I want to remind folks, as the holiday season approaches, oh my goodness, I know, I can't believe it either that it's October. I'm oh. not panicking. I'm not. No, me? Panic attack? No. no. Not yet. No. Well, actually, just a tiny bit, but that let us that's just between you and me. Don't tell anybody. Okay. But before you do any of that shopping, or maybe just some general shopping, I want to remind you that you can support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network in whole by visiting our website and clicking down at the links at the bottom of our website, tags your shopping session with our affiliate tag. But... If you want to make it even easier, you can grab our Chrome or Firefox extension. Pow! Automatically tags your shopping session for you. That way you don't even have to worry about it. Plus, we include other countries. You know, like So Amazon has a bunch of different versions and a bunch of other crazy kids do. Because apparently there's a different internet in different parts of the world. Whatever. We have support for that in the browser. We also just added Woot.com to the browser extension. We just recently did an update, too. So if you have our browser extension, you have to re-enable it, at least on Chrome. I just thought I'd make a mention, by the way. Just to remind uh-huh. folks, if you're going to be out shopping or you know somebody's going to be picking up one of them new Kindles, the new Kindles are here. The new Kindles are here. Uh, yeah. You know, it actually looks kind of sweet. It has a pretty nice display with uh, 339 uh, PPI, which is, you know, that's really high resolution. It's going to make uh, a lot of photo- uh, photographs look really good. If you know anyone that's getting this or maybe a family member, this has that new feature. Heather, did you hear about this? It has a um, Mayday button. That it's, it's in software, oh, but you goodness. press it and it actually does like a video call with an Amazon support representative on the freaking tablet. And it's right there. And you get like, they can draw on the screen and you can even oh, grant yes. them the permission to take over. Now, probably not something I am going to want, but actually yeah. family members, maybe actually. Yeah. So if, if you're going to recommend them something like this, maybe have them use our affiliate link at the bottom of our website before they purchase. Or just grab that browser extension to have it taken care of automatically. And we really do appreciate it. It helps us keep these shows on the air and helps us even out our costs as they come up, which seem to be plentiful, I have learned. 
as a small business person, there's always something around the corner, like the news bite. Okay, Heather, what are we covering the news bite? Lunar formation and age. One of the leading lunar formation theories is that some big mysterious planet about the size of Mars slammed into early baby Earth about 4.56 billion years ago, just as the solar system was coming together. And that cataclysm of explosions ended up with the Earth and a whole bunch of debris that ended up coming together and forming the moon. Right. New analysis is suggesting it's about 100 million years younger than we thought. So not necessarily that the whole theory has to be thrown out, but just the timeline maybe has to be adjusted. Timeline, definitely. There are other theories that are popping up recently. Uh-oh. But this is a new kind of timeline, which definitely adds a little bit more to everything. Hmm. It means that the Earth would have had another 100 million years of development before the giant impact. Oh, which so, is significant, isn't it? Which is how much was starting to form. Was there even possibly a primordial atmosphere developed? And if it did, would that, would that have impact completely blown it away, per se? Or maybe such as something would have held on afterwards? So it's kind of a, a big question mark. We can definitely age the solar system. That's from uh, the asteroids, small asteroids, would be, at the very beginning, would have been extensively hit, so you'd have melting from the heat of those collisions. And then once everything calmed down a little bit, those little planetesimals don't have enough heat. They don't have a, a core in the middle like the Earth does heating it. Why wouldn't, if, okay, go ahead. We'll continue. I'll ask you when you're done. I won't interrupt. Okay. So you could say, okay, we know this asteroid melted at this point, which means we can say, go back 4.568 billion years. Hmm. So we say that is when the solar system was really coming together. Now, when the planets starting to come together, that's still a question mark. Because, um, you know, they wouldn't, they have enough heat in the middle to continue melting. And you could sort of lava on the surface. And so it kind of redistributes the surface of the, of the planet, you're kind of erasing away what's happened and riding on top of it. Hmm. But you had question. Well, I guess it seems like if, so I'm, I was watching the demo videos that you linked in the show notes and uh, it seems like to me there would be so much debris that we wouldn't, wouldn't the planet, if it, if it was an impact like this, it seems like we'd have like a ring. We'd have like Saturn type style ring. Even, I mean, why, where would all of the debris have gone? Because we have a gravitational pull on that stuff. Yeah, well, it would either have come back to Earth or just because of the way it was, all that debris would have conglomerated into. Because it was all hot it, and sloppy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, Saturn's rings are very tiny pieces of ice that yeah, are yeah. constantly getting hit. And their moons is actual, you know, some of those moons are actually um, volcanoes of of ice water, so they're kind of continually adding to that. But the moon obviously is a nice big chunk of rock. It's not adding anything extra to make a ring per se. It seems so wild that we can't even quite nail down where how our moon was formed. It just shows you that there's still a lot that we got to figure out. 
Yeah. That's, that's I mean, in our are, backyard. Do you think we could dial that one in? <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah, it's really hard to read that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. the other leading theory that's kind of coming up in the ranks would be that there was, instead of one you know, Earth size, one Mars size, that it would have been two roughly equal planetesimals that smashed into each other. And then that would have formed Earth and Moon. Mm. But still, any of it's... It, they're just trying to date things. They're kind of moving the formation date of the moon kind of further and further down the line. Now, we think the moon had, you know, global ocean of molten rock shortly after its formation. So we can currently, we're kind of determining the age of those lunar rocks that we have, saying, all right, those rocks that possibly came from that lava ocean early in the moon's history are, you know, this age. And then, here on Earth, we can say, all right, we have signs of s- several locations. The major melting event happening at, you know, 4.45 billion years ago. So now they're kind of like narrowing it down. We're like, okay, we know the moon had a giant melting event here when it was starting to cool down. And we know the Earth had some sort of giant um, impact event here. So it's kind of closing in and narrowing down as we kind of continue to get better techniques and inc- inc- incrementally, you know, improve our technology. Mm-hmm. I bet we'll figure this one out. I feel like this is one we can solve. We have, I think the, so. we have the power and we have, we have the ability, the technology, I guess, as they say. Well, very fascinating, Heather. And uh, check out the videos that Heather linked in the show notes. They're really cool. Uh, especially that one of them looks like it's like super high-end CG. It's pretty neat. Uh, well, yeah. I got good news. The band is in here. We'll see what All they right. play for us. Let's give it a go. Oh, the two-byte news. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the band. Uh, yeah. So what are we talking about in the two-byte news? All right. Infant blood sugar. There are newborns that are have low blood sugar, sometimes they have to go to the intensive care unit for intravenous infusions of glucose. Now, there's a new study that shows that rubbing sweet gel on the inside of the baby's cheeks can also help with low blood sugar. Hmm. So there are, when you see, when low blood pressure, blood blood sugar in newborns, uh, neonatal hypoglycemia, it can, I mean, it occurs when baby body needs more sugar to meet the energy needs than is available in its bloodstream. So, I mean, prolonged low blood sugar can risk, runs the risk of neurological injury. Now, Does this seen- happen in the U.S.? Is that possible? I yeah. thought they just gave you a sugar IV when you were born in the U.S. I didn't... Uh- <laughs> no, not quite. Now, currently they show 5 to 15% of healthy newborns measure low blood, blood sugar in the tests. Of course... Doctors don't typically run that kind of analysis. They only run it when they see, you know, symptoms, poor color, seizures, or, you know, all the list of kind of things that go happen. Now, a lot of infants with low, low blood sugar don't actually have those symptoms. So now they're kind of designated, okay, what's the at-risk infants? You know, preterm, diabetic mothers, large, small for gestational age. So it's all these different things that are going, okay, we think these groups of babies have a higher chance, so we'll test their blood. And we see all these babies that are meeting 
that we see definite signs of what's happening. So we'll test their blood. But we're not really getting a full view of, of we know that it is this much percentage. Because we don't test everybody, every baby. So it, and they did a study where it was 237 you know, apparently healthy newborns. You know, they had one of the risks, you know, or were, you know, feeding poorly or something. Now, half the babies were randomly assigned assigned to get this glucose gel made of dextrose. Um, So rubbed on the inner cheeks about six times over the course of two days. The rest of the babies got some placebo gel. Now, in the placebo gel group, 30 babies are about uh, 25% we actually had to go to the intensive care unit for hypoglycemia. In the dextrose group, where they actually were treating it with the sugar, 16 or 13% had to go to, to the intensive care. So it's half as many. So it had been tried in the early 90s as, an, as a rub for infants. It wasn't really fully tested or put into wide, widespread use, but sort of coming back. That it's yeah yeah and it's it's a pretty seems like a pretty low cost low impact solution yeah so it's you're not having to worry about you know taking the baby away from the mother putting it in the neonatal unit you know having to worry about IVs you know being separated from the mother having you know all sorts of various issues that come from that that maybe you'll be able to catch a lot of them doing this rub before they have to go. Now we have another story, don't we? We do. The New Horizons Message Initiative. What's, tell me about this. All right. So the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yes, those, those people. But they've created a petition called the New Horizons Message Initiative, and it's asking NASA officials to upload some crowdsourced message that they don't know yet mm. of onto the New Horizons spacecraft. This is the spacecraft that is heading towards Pluto. Now they're saying, all right, you know, what their idea is after the craft has hit, you know, has gone past Pluto, it's on all of its science data and all it's doing is just flying out, not doing anything except calling home. They say, okay, well, there is, can you take like 100 megabits of its memory and let us put together, you know, essentially a new golden disk, you know, the golden disks on Voyagers that, you know, had messages they had hello from earth and pictures we can add it while it's in flight yeah to be able to upload that and say all right here's all sorts of pictures and sounds from earth and a message or whatever now of course the the program itself new horizons they talked about it before they actually put the the spacecraft together and went it out but they're on tight budget didn't want to get distracted so they went all right we'll shelve that idea Hmm. now seti is coming out and saying hey, let's put a petition together to ask NASA. Now, it's one of those things where NASA funds won't be used. Um, so the group is kind of asking for private individual funding. And it's going to be possible to do that. Now, of course, they have to wait for NASA to approve or disapprove. So they have to go through all sorts of different steps for NASA to say, yes, now give us your little bit of information and we'll upload it. Mm-hmm. But it's just sort of a, a spark of an idea that they have going. And it's, it's kind of interesting, the fact that it would be crowdsourced. You know, the people will sort of decide what would be in that and try to fund it and move it forward. And all they'd have to do is, like, 
Dear NASA, can you mail this letter for us? Uh, essentially, I guess. <laughs> um, Heather, stand by. Yes. I've got a flashing light. Hold on a second. The side by 2000. Oh, good. It's either incoming communication or self-destruct. I never know. I really got to get that bulb fixed. So we have a little viewer feedback here, don't we? We do. I got this message in from Nikki from the Summer Cybite co-host, also over there on uh, Stoked Radio co-host. She sent me a story that was about lightsaber technology. Real science, people. Researchers have found a way to <laughs> bind photons together. Like they bind were molecules. photons. <laughs> so now... This is the makings of a lightsaber, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Now we were pretty sure that, you know... Everything we thought about photons, you know, that they're elementary light particles, totally massless, don't interact with each other. Now we're kind of saying, okay, apparently they can. So they took a couple of photons in a cloud of rubidium. This is a chemical metal. Um, so they flashes and then had a cloud of this metal in a vacuum chamber cooled to just a couple of degrees above absolute zero. Of course, this is one of those situations where it's really, really specific constrained yeah. set of things totally not sitting around in your living room. That's step one, Heather. That's step one. Yes. So they were able to shoot a couple of photons into this and it, they came out as a pair, like they were a single molecule. So what happened is they started to interact with each other go as they passed through this medium so strongly that it began to act like they had mass and that's what made them be able to bind together. A photonic interaction that's mediated by atomic interaction. Wow. This makes the two photons behave like a molecule, and when they exit the medium, they're much more likely to do so together than as single photons, hence binding them. Amazing. Oh, yep. gosh. It's like they're able, one, you know, starts, um, you know, has energy imparted to it, starts so exciting, and then the other uh, photon similarly, so they start pushing and pulling each other. And, of course, they want to, you know, this is sort of a new state of matter that they're trying to, Analyze, of course, they're thinking quantum computing. The rest of us are thinking, um, oh, you know, lightsabers. Now, I was thinking holograms too. Oh, there you go. That'd be good. Well, it's in such a way that they said enough of them together could, you know, hit each other in some way. Uh, Heaven's Ringe in the chat room asks how, if they're totally bound together, or do they, you know, separate eventually? It did not specifically state in the article, but my guess would be that they probably would eventually separate in the fact that this is a specific yeah. state of matter yeah. and that it only happens in this rubidium cloud at a couple of degrees above Kelvin in an almost absolute vacuum. So once it leaves that kind of, uh, you know, environment, then it goes over folks. It goes over. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. It can't hold it together. I would think. But maybe, I mean, it says once it leaves the medium, they're more likely to stay together. So maybe. Yes. Depends on the conditions outside the medium, I would say. Yeah. Well, now I know people will ask, and so people probably have asked, hey, how do I get a hold of Cybite? That's right. Minnie Nessie uh, sent me a tweet asking if I had a Facebook page. Now, Cybite does not have a Facebook page, but you can reach me on my Twitter, as he did, at JB underscore Mars underscore base. You also use the Jupiter Broadcasting contact form. And I do have a Google Plus SciBite going on. It's a uh, link in the show notes. So I during the summer SciBite season, 
I was definitely updating that quite a bit because, you know, the episodes were pretty short, so I wanted to kind of shoot out other stories. I'm not updating it quite as often right now mm-hmm. just because I need to focus on the mm-hmm. show notes. Effort where effort needs to go, Heather. That's what I always just say. Just because these episodes are a little bit longer. Now, I do post things occasionally, but I, I can't promise how often that might be updated. Very good, Heather. Very good. Well, links to all that stuff is in the show notes. Hey, uh, I feel like talking about Mars. You ready to do a curiosity update? Yes. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. Receive on Mars. Yep. So, what's going on up there, Will? Uh, what's the latest with Curiosity? All right. They have started publishing some more official data from the, you know, they were hanging around the first area that they were analyzing for about six months. So now some team, some of the rover teams are putting out papers about that. And they were able to reveal that the first scoop of soil that they analyzed, the very first, showed about 2% of the soil was water. Hey, that's good news, right? Yes. Now, it's not completely new news. Any of the the orbiters have been, you know, have seen, hey, we think there's this amount of, you know, water by weight in the soil in these various areas. Now, under the soil, there's been estimates of up to 10 or 12 percent. Now, the top layer itself would be much drier from, you know, radiation, solar radiation and things like that. And yeah, so you'd be able to take that top layer, and because of all the wind, it's a pretty much more analogous wherever you'd be able to see it. But uh, so no, so, uh, no digging wells yet. No digging wells yet, but this is the first time we've seen you know scooped up you know proof. All right, okay. We've been able to estimate it from orbit, but now we actually see yes, the top layer of soil. Um, is there? They're able to see um, when they took the soil, they dumped it into their little uh, heater. They're able to re- release some carbon dioxide, some oxygen, some sulfur. They didn't see any organics, but totally reasonable that they wouldn't, because of the harsh radiation and oxidants that they see on the surface yeah. of Mars, there wouldn't be anything on there. So we've got like we've got evidence of ancient riverbeds. We've got, you know, yep. we find, we find water. I mean, this is to me, how do you have, how do you have riverbeds? How do you have water and not have maybe a little bit of life? I mean, I know there's no methane, but I mean, come on, a little bit of life, Heather. Come on. Right. Yep. You starting to get positive vibes. That, that is the you're question. Hopeful, you're hopeful. You know, eventually that thing's going to come across some sort of a uh, fossil or something. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, but yeah. And they did actually find some further evidence of a different ancient river. They come around the patch of, pebbles that had been formed round, you know, rounded by flowing water, you know, long, long time ago. What was important is that we'd seen it before at that first outcropping. So we said, yay, we see a ri- we saw a river. Here's the size of the pebbles. We know that it was flowing this deep and this high. And now we see it again. But the more interesting thing is that they are different. So that you can see, be- because they're different, we know that in a such a way that we know that they were formed at different times in Mars's history. Hmm. So as we cross this sort of expanse heading to of Mars, heading to that the Mount Sharp, the mountain where we're where it's headed to, we can look at, you know, hey, here's a riverbed, hey, here's a riverbed, you know, kind of plot it out as we go and be able to get a much better idea of where the water was, when the water was over this 
greater expanse of of this uh, crater of Mars. That's where it'll find the fossil. <laughs> That's my where words, it'll. And they, I mean, yeah. I mean, even you know, even if they find it, they won't say anything. No, I, I kid. Uh, science is waiting for science. Yeah, I understand. I understand. All right. Well, that's what the Curiosity rover is up to. Anything else you want to touch on? Uh, not right now. Otherwise, that we're just continuing to do the road trek over to Mount Sharp. All right. Well, then jump in the time machine because here we go. All right. Look at you. Got the new supercharger on here. Runs nice, huh? Now, I'm glad we didn't go too far back with the new supercharger, but this only took us to 55 years ago, October 4th, 1958. Heather, what happened this week in science? Beeps came from the sky. Sputnik, the space age, Soviet Union, to the dismay of the U.S., launched Sputnik, first man-made satellite into orbit around the Earth, circled every 95 minutes or so, went about 20,000 miles an hour, and freaked us out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sputnik merely means uh, companion or fellow traveler in Russian. Launched out of Kazakhstan. Stayed in orbit for about three months, then fell from the sky and burned up. But it was, you know, transmitting a radio signal that uh, all it was doing was instrumentation for temperature measurements. But you could, you know, to put a radio. Which a lot of people had back then, you know, that they yes, could tune they in. Yes, they could point it up in the sky and they could hear... It's sending out its little uh, tones, that's which... Only 55 years ago. Yeah, that's... We had tones coming from the sky that freaked everybody out 55 years ago, and now we're roving around on Mars, scooping up dirt and finding water. That's right. From there to that. Well, very good, Heather. Let me recalibrate the side by 2000, so that way we can look up into the sky this week. That's right. For the next two weeks, you might be able to spot, if you're in a dark enough location, what they call a false dawn as I put little air quotes in the air, theater of the mind. It's called zodiac light. It's caused by sunlight scattering about the space dust around the zodiac. So it's the plane of, the, of all the planets. They're all in a disk. And it, at certain points, you can have a whole bunch of dust there, and you can scatter the sunlight off of that. Now, moonlight, light pollution, both are going to knock that out. You're not going to be able to see it. But if you're in a dark enough area... You might be able to see it, and it really looks like, you know, a shine in the sky. Like, oh, wow, what do you mean the sun is coming up at this time? That is but, so cool looking. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of those notes. things where you, if, you, if you live in a really bright area, take a minute to look at the video. It sure is neat. That yeah. is so cool. That's probably only the way most of us are going to be able to see it. But <laughs> if you're in a dark enough area, then totally let us know if you see it. Yeah. And... Uh, more specific notes on Friday, October the 4th at twilight. Take a peek high in the northeastern sky. You'll see it. You might be able to see a giant kind of squash W on its end. That is the constellation Cassiopeia. And over in the northwest, you'll be able to see the Big Dipper lowering into the sky. The planet roundup this week, Venus and Saturn are both low in the west to southwest during twilight. Saturn is much fainter. And on Friday, it's about 17 degrees to the right of Venus. So you see the bright Venus, they're about 17 degrees. Now, if you hold your pinky and pointer finger stretched out, held at arm's length, that's 15 degrees. So if you see the bright Venus, then you can do that to kind of get an idea where Saturn might be. Mars is still an early riser this week. 
about 3 a.m. local time, I'm going to be rising in the east. Now, right below Mars is a blue-white star we talked about last week, Regulus. Two binary stars orbiting each other. Now, they'll be about, on the 5th, they'll be about 6 degrees apart, and 5 degrees about three, your three middle fingers held together. They'll be about, you know, yay far apart. Now, Regulus is very blue, and Mars is more orangish-red, so you can kind of see the color comparison between the two of those. Jupiter is also a, a night owl this week. Rising about midnight over in the east, it's going to end up kind of high in the east to southeast by early dawn. Hey, that's pretty busy. Is that, is that the whole show right there, huh? Yeah. I, I, there's no way I can keep all that in my head. No way. So if you're like me, go over to the show notes. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click on SciBite 104. And then uh, all the up, everything's great. Every, it's like it's like that's great just on its own. But if you scroll down specifically at the bottom, that's where Heather has all of the keep an eye out for highlighted in the show notes. It's pretty cool, including that video of the dust cloud. All right, Heather. Well, uh, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And of course, thank you everyone for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. Don't forget, we love to have you join us live over at jblive.tv on a Tuesday. And now when you go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, it takes care of the time zone for you. And of course, you can always download us on Wednesdays. Heather, we'll see you right back here next week, okay? See you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. See you right back here next week. <laughs>